we see the things that we saw in Acts chapter 16 last, uh, over the last few weeks, it raises the question for us of why didn't Paul, why didn't Silas, why didn't the rest of their companions give up and go back home? What sort of things did they encounter? They came to a community where the number of people who feared God was so small, they didn't seemingly even have a proper synagogue. When they preached the gospel, a comparatively small handful believed. Then they were confronted by a demon in the marketplace, arrested unlawfully, imprisoned and beaten without cause, spared through a miraculous event of an earthquake, saw the jailer converted, and were urged to leave the city by the city officials. If you had experienced all those things, I'm sure that you would at least have the possibility cross your mind that maybe I should go do something else. And yet, there are a number of reasons that I think that they did not give up. The first was that they were confident that God had people that he still wanted to save in the other cities that they were going to visit. We'll see that in the first part of chapter 17. The fact that the opposition of those who are going to continually try to prevent the spread of the gospel was not going to succeed because God is stronger than men and the purpose of the Holy Spirit was that the gospel would spread through the known world. And then thirdly, I think that there was a very real sense in which Paul and his companions had a burden to take the gospel to those who were still in ignorance, specifically because there was a day of judgment coming that they were going to have to reckon with, and they needed to hear the message of the gospel. And so similarly, when we face obstacles to giving the gospel, when we face obstacles to following God, are we convinced of those three things? That God can and will work in the places where he has put us, that whatever opposition arises is not something that can thwart his purposes or his plans, and that there are people who are dwelling in ignorance of the truth who need to hear it because they will face the judgment day of God whether or not they are ready, and we have the opportunity to help them to get ready. Let's start in the first part of chapter 17. We didn't read this first part, uh, partially uh, because it's a long chapter and partially because it's very similar to some other things that we've seen in the book of Acts. But uh, just to give us the context, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world, have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So in these first nine verses, we see a very similar pattern. They go into the synagogue, they preach the gospel. 
some believe, I think it's notable to point out that some of them, some of the Jews in the synagogue were persuaded, but a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Why was this significant? The Jews were God's chosen people. The Jews had the law. The Jews knew the Old Testament. You would expect that they would be the ones who would accept the message that Paul was bringing to them, and yet they are the ones who consistently are being converted in comparatively small numbers other than at the day of Pentecost, or who as a whole are opposing the work of the spread of the gospel. We're going to see a contrast to that between their reception and the reception of the Gentiles later in the chapter. Again, I don't think Luke's point is to say that the Jews were to be viewed in a negative light simply because they were rejecting the gospel, but rather to point out the, the contrast between their response to the gospel in light of their spiritual background and the response of the Gentiles to the gospel in light of their spiritual background. Furthermore, not only was God saving Jews and Gentiles, in fact, large numbers of Gentiles, but he was also saving large numbers of women. And again, this culturally would have been significant for them because you would have thought that it would have been the men who were taking the, the role and the lead in accepting the gospel and being converted along with their families. Uh, you think back to the Garden of Eden and Adam's stepping back and failing to respond properly to the truth led to the fall into sin. And that pattern, I think, continues throughout history, even in a passage like this, where, surprisingly, it's the women who are being converted and the men are not responding to the truth. And just as a brief aside, I think that that's a warning for the men in churches to not fail to live up to the responsibilities that God has called them to. But we see the pattern of the Jews that they follow in a number of occasions. Jews allying themselves not just with other Jews, but with wicked men from the marketplace. They essentially hire a mob to go drive Paul and Silas out of the city, potentially to kill them if they can succeed, but at the very least to beat them and to throw them out of the city. Consider what happened with Christ. Falsely accused, false witnesses hired to testify against him, what happened with Stephen? Same kind of thing. What happened with Ahab in the Old Testament? Same kind of thing. Accused the righteous man by hiring false witnesses. So here are the Jews who know the law. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't commit murder. Who are bearing false witness against their neighbor and seeking to commit murder in an ironic twist that those who know the law are not following it which is sort of the point that Paul makes in Romans 1 that we saw last Sunday afternoon, right? Not only those who do such things, but those who give hearty approval to those who do them. The Jews wouldn't say, I'm going to do this directly, but they had no qualms about hiring someone to stir up a mob and potentially kill Paul and his companions. Again, we see the blindness, we see the stubbornness, we see the opposition of the gospel that the Jews were persisting in. Since they can't find Paul and the rest, they take Jason, who's apparently one of the converts here in the city, take them before the city authorities. What's their accusation? Their accusation is not, we don't like the message that they're bringing. 
their accusation is they are starting political unrest. Again, this is ironic considering who is the one who started the mob? The accusers are the ones who are guilty of creating unrest in the city. The accusers are the ones who are guilty of violating the law, and yet those who are not violating the law, those who are in fact having allegiance to the proper authority, who is Jesus, they are the ones being falsely accused. Now, was there a sense in which their accusation was true at the end of verse 7, that there is another king, Jesus? Perhaps, but it's wrong in at least two counts. First of all, I don't think that the way that Paul and others presented it was in place of Caesar, follow Jesus as a political authority. Secondly, from their perspective, it's not that there's another King Jesus, it's that there's only one King Jesus and all other authorities are underneath him. And so while there is an element of truth in their accusation, it's very much a misrepresentation of the message that was being proclaimed. The goal was not overthrow Caesar. The goal was not don't listen to the civil authorities. The goal was know and follow Jesus, who is the one who was raised from the dead, the one who fulfilled all of the promises of the Old Testament. But that was not what the Jews wanted to admit. So they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities, such uh, to a point that uh, Jason and his companions essentially had to post bail so that they could be released from custody, is what it seems was taking place. Now, in this case, Paul and his companions were spared, perhaps by God's providence, given the fact that they had just been beaten in the previous city and had gone through a great deal of hardship. Uh, but we see that following Christ had a cost not just for the apostles, but also for any who believed the message. But we see God at work. God had people who needed to hear the gospel in Thessalonica, God had people who believed the gospel in Thessalonica, and God's work went forward, as we'll see in the next section, despite all of the opposition of the Jews. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left." We see a contrast here. When it says they were more noble-minded than the ones at Thessalonica, sometimes we take this in the direction of, you know, they were really good at Bible study and the ones at Thessalonica weren't. I don't think that that's the main point. Here's the contrast. There are Jews in Thessalonica that are blind to the message of Scripture. There are Jews in Berea who readily accept that the message that is being proclaimed is fulfilling Scripture. So there's a sense in which, yes, they are more noble in that they were accepting the message of Scripture. But it's less about how you study your Bible, that they searched it eagerly day by day. And it's more about what's their response to the, the proclamation that this Jesus is the Christ. They said, okay, what does the Scripture say about this Jesus? 
does this person that's being proclaimed to us match what the scripture says? They readily accept. And so we see a contrast here. Many of them believed. Thessalonica, some of them believed. The rest of them stirred up a mob to drive Paul and the rest out. In Berea, many of the Jews believed. Why? Because they took Scripture as the authority, saw in Jesus the fulfillment of all of these things that they had known from the Old Testament, and accepted by God's power the gospel message. It seems that God did for these Jews in Berea what he did for Lydia in chapter 16, which is he opened their hearts to respond to what Paul was preaching, his message. The Jews in Thessalonica are so agitated and opposed to the work that's taking place that once they hear that Jews in Berea have believed, they come all the way over there to stir up trouble again and seek to uh, interfere with God's ministry through Paul and the rest. And yet, what takes place? Rather than that ministry being stopped, it drives them to do ministry in another place. So their goal is to stop the spread of the gospel, and they are in fact promoting the spread of the gospel. Instead of Paul spending a longer time in Berea, Paul now is going to Athens. And Paul is going to Athens because he's waiting for Timothy and Silas and, and the rest. So Paul's opportunity to preach the gospel at Athens, which is a well-known one in the book of Acts, likely would not have taken place, certainly not in the same way, if it had not been for the opposition of the Jews from Thessalonica. And so we see God's sovereignty in working these things out such that the very actions by which ungodly men tried to thwart the spread of the gospel in fact promoted it. God has people that he wanted to save in every city. We see that from the first nine verses. God overcomes the opposition and in fact increases ministry because of it. This has echoes of what we saw early in the book of Acts, right? Stephen's persecution and the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem almost becomes a Tower of Babel sort of incident. Instead of the early church clustering in Jerusalem, they're scattered throughout the known world, and ministry is multiplied greatly, even through what seems to be an evil event. And God's purpose is accomplished. So then we come to the bulk of chapter 17, and we see Paul's heart for ministry, and that's what I want to focus most of our time on. It says in verse 16, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. You ever have that happen to you? You see someone who doesn't know God, and you see how their life is so wrapped up in something that is comparatively pointless. Does that move you to compassion or to pride? It's very easy for us to look down on those who don't know God and say, I can't believe they would live for something so worthless. And yet Paul was driven to compassion because he saw that they were enslaved to their idolatry. Now, he's going to say in his message later in chapter 17 that, that they're still responsible being enslaved to sin doesn't mean you're not responsible for it. You're still responsible for it. 
But it does mean that there's an element of compassion because not only is that person uh, experiencing the consequences of their sin, they're also enslaved to it. And so there should be a degree of compassion toward people in those sorts of circumstances. It's difficult sometimes, I think, for us to maintain that biblical balance. I don't love the sin. I don't love what the sinner is doing. But I can and should have compassion on them. This follows the example of Christ in the Gospels, right? Jesus didn't say, I'm a good Jew. I'm going to avoid all these publicans, these tax collectors, all of these sinners, these immoral men and women. I'm going to avoid them because I'm a good Jew and I don't need to go near them. He ate with them. He ministered to them. And ironically, they were largely the ones who turned and trusted in him. Again, can God save all sorts of people? Yes. God can save rich people. God can save morally upright people. But more often than not, God saves people who realize that they don't have any answers to life and that they need God. doesn't mean that they're automatically closer to God. In terms of, of, of distance from God, we're all equally lost. But there is a sense in which it's interesting that God saves people, sometimes and often in the book of Acts, who are not the people that we would expect. Which I think might be another warning for us, which is sometimes we think if I have the truth, I'm automatically good with God. I've grown up in church, I've heard a lot of sermons, I've read my Bible a lot, maybe I can quote a lot of verses. That should never cause us to be careless in thinking that everything is fine between us and God just because we've been in church a lot. Especially for those of you who are kids here today. You hear the truth a lot in Sunday school, in church, from your parents. This is something that you have to believe for yourself and live for yourself. Because if you're only doing it because your parents encourage you to do it, you're not going to keep doing it when you're out on your own. It has to be something that is changing your life because God is working in your heart and life. Paul was provoked. He was stirred up. He was experiencing compassion. But it stirred him to action. Sometimes our being stirred up about something sort of meets it its end when we post a rant on Facebook or have a conversation with another Christian about it or maybe make a note in a journal entry about it. And that's as far as it goes. But Paul didn't let it stop there. He went on to act. And so what does he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So if you see someone who's lost, don't assume it's someone else's job to talk to them. Don't just say, hey, really, somebody should do something about this. Go and talk to those who need to hear the gospel. Don't let it be, I, I have a sense that something should be done, and then not do anything. Act on the recognition that they need to hear the gospel. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with them. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? 
Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. What do we know of the Epicureans and the Stoics? We know from other records in history that Epicureans' goal was to maximize pleasure in their lives. So sometimes we have this idea that someone who's an Epicurean was sort of like, I'll do whatever I want as much as I want for as long as I want. But the reality was they recognized there had to be limits. They might have enjoyed uh, wine, but they knew that there were consequences if they indulged in it too much. And so the Epicureans' goal was to maximize pleasure. And in so doing, they thought that they would find fulfillment in life. The Stoics' perspective was to accept life as it came. This did not then mean that they didn't enjoy anything that was pleasurable, but they recognized that there were many things in life that they could not control that were not enjoyable, and they believed it was part of their philosophical duty to accept those things as they came their way. To both of them, Paul's message would have seemed strange. Here is a strange deity that's being proclaimed, one that's not perhaps as admirable as some of our deities, because it seems he was defeated. And then he was raised from the dead. Many of them wouldn't have believed in an afterlife or in a resurrection. Here's someone who's proclaiming a message of suffering. How does that fit with a, with a goal of maximizing pleasure in life? Honestly, what their objections to Christianity would have been are not that much different from the objections that people today have. I don't want to be a Christian because there's a lot of things I have to give up. I don't want to be a Christian because it doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to be a Christian because fill in the blank, some variety of those kinds of reasons. So then we might say, well, let's change the message. But what does Paul do? When they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know what these things mean. They give him an opportunity to explain it further. And sometimes those opportunities fall in our lap, so we need to be ready for them. And we think that being ready for them means coming up with an answer for every potential off-the-wall question that someone might ask about what it means to be a Christian. But being ready for that means what it says in, in 2 Peter, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Know who Jesus is. Know why he's your God and how you've trusted in him, and tell other people about it, humbly, and with reverence for God. That's all that you and I have to do. We don't have to answer questions about how the age of the world is connected with the amount of dust on the moon, and uh, why those things don't line up, or why the orbit of the earth is a particular way and not another way, or why the magnetic poles are moving, or all of these other sorts of things. We don't have to answer all of those potential objections, at least initially, because ultimately we could answer every one of those objections and someone would still not trust Christ. Why? Because it's not the power of scientific argumentation that gets people into heaven. It's not the power of persuading people that I'm a really smart person gets them to believe in Jesus. It is doing what Paul did, which was to preach Jesus and him crucified, buried, and risen again, exalted to the right hand of God. Take that message, and that message is what God uses, as it says in Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. 
That's the message that we need to take. And so that's what Paul is trying to do in verses 22 through 31. Before we get there, verse 21, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. When you have the opportunity to present the gospel to someone who doesn't know God, their goals and your goals are probably not going to be lined up. Why did they want to hear what Paul was saying? We want to hear something new and different because we've been talking about the same things for a while. What is Paul's goal? They need to know the one true God because they're following a whole bunch of false gods. Is that deceptive or wrong for your goal to be different from their goal? No, as long as you don't package it as uh, something deceptive. For example, if we had an activity for teens at the church, it shouldn't just be, we should not only put on the flyer pizza and games if there's also going to be a gospel message because that's being deceptive. Just as an example, if you invite your friends over, you should have enough of a Christian testimony with them that it doesn't feel like an ambush if you talk to them about God at the dinner table. That's the sort of thing that I'm saying. But again, there's going to be a disconnect between what they're expecting and what you're expecting because you have a different purpose in it. Verse 22, Paul is standing up in the midst of the Areopagus. This was the place that they would have gathered to have these sorts of philosophical discussions. Notice how he starts. He starts out by saying, you're very religious, you're very devout which is an interesting way to start because we might think that he would point out, you guys are all idolaters and you're wrong and you're condemned, which is true, but that's not where he starts. Why does he start with, you're very religious? Because it's connected with the thing that provoked him when he first came into the city. He looked around and saw evidence of idolatry everywhere in the city, and he said, you're very religious. You have an idol for every god. Specifically, I even found one that said, to an unknown God. Now, when they said to an unknown God, were they expecting to get the response that Paul gave them? No, but Paul saw that as a perfect opportunity to say, you're so religious and concerned about not offending any God, you even said if there's a God we've missed, here's an altar for him. Here's the God you've missed who is, in fact, the only God, and, and forget all the rest of them. Paul uses that as an opportunity. Do you and I have similar opportunities when we converse with people around us? Yes. Someone starts talking to you like, I can't believe the world is such a mess like it is today. You can say, yeah, I don't know why it is that way either. Or you can say, I know why the world is such a mess. It's because of sin. You sin, I sin, everybody sins, and that's why the world is broken, it's a mess, and all those sorts of things. Will you get a positive response? Not necessarily, but have it, you at least taken the opportunity to use that thing that they have brought up as a springboard for presenting gospel truth? Yes. That's what Paul is doing. He's looking for an opportunity. He's connecting it with the gospel. We can do this poorly. We can... Uh, we could do something like uh, last, a few weeks ago, hey, have you heard about that polar vortex thing that's going on? Well, God made the whole world, and he controls the weather, and so you should believe in Jesus. We're not filling in the gaps very well if we make that big of a jump. But to say, 
You've, you recognize that there might be a God you don't know. Let me tell you about the God that you don't know. I think that that's a reasonable enough jump from that topic to the one he's going to talk to them about. So what does he say about God? God made everything, but he doesn't need any of the things that he made. Which, at first glance, is um, surprising. And it, the more you think about it, is really a subtle attack on their way of life, because what is their perspective? We've got to make all of these temples, all of these shrines, all of these idolatrous altars. And Paul is saying, the one true God doesn't need your shrines, doesn't need your altars, doesn't need your temples. You can't contain him in them, and there's nothing you can add to him by them being here. I say, well, how does that fit with the testimony of the Old Testament? Why was there a temple in Jerusalem? Because God chose that city as his visible dwelling place on earth, and it was supposed to be a testament to the nations around them. But even then, God didn't need the temple. Was God still the God of the people of Israel when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and torn down? Yeah. Was God still the God of the people of Israel when Jonah's on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean? Yeah. God is God regardless of geography, regardless of boxes that we build to try to confine him. That's Paul's point. God is bigger than your temple. God doesn't need your worship to be complete in himself because that's a pagan concept of God's, right? Um, there's a, a, a British fantasy author named Terry Pratchett, and he writes a lot of satirical fiction. And in one of his books... He, it's sort of a commentary on this idea of gods. And in this book that he wrote, what's the concept of the god? The god's power is only as great as the belief of those who believe in him. One person believes in him, the god's a weak, scrawny little thing. Lots of people believe in him, the god's nigh omnipotent. That's how the pagans think about gods. They need us. They need our sacrifices to feed on. They need our worship to, to give them energy. What does Paul say? God doesn't need you. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you, but he doesn't need you. He's independent. He's complete. He's all-powerful, regardless of whether or not you recognize him. In fact, he's the source of your life. So, so far removed from you being the reason that a God exists, the one true God is the reason that you exist, the reason that you can have breath and life and all of these sorts of things. And not only did he do that, but he's also the reason that you are in this nation at this place at this time. Why? Because he's the one who created all these nations in the beginning and scattered them out at the Tower of Babel and orchestrated who was going to rule when and in what way so that you people in Athens are in this place at this time because the one true God that you don't know yet, that you've worshipped in ignorance, is working in human history. Why? Why does God work in human history? Verse 27, They would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. 
God does the things that he does as a testament to himself to use those as part of the process of bringing us to himself. When it says that they might seek God, Paul's going to say in Romans 3, no one does this on their own. And yet when the Spirit works in our hearts and lives and we look back and see God's sovereign plan in putting us in a particular place at a particular time, what happens? God uses, us, uses it to bring us to Him and God causes us to praise Him because we realize it's nothing that we could have accomplished on our own. And then Paul does another surprising thing in verse 28. He quotes from their own literature. As we were... Uh, as we were talking about in the Sunday school hour with regards to uh, whether or not we should have hobbies and take opportunities to meet people who don't know God through those sorts of venues, Paul had at least enough awareness of the writings of their poets to be able to at least quote a few things as a connecting point to them. And he's not saying by doing this, I agree with everything your poets have said. He's saying something more like this. In this one point, at least, they got it right. Why? Because God is present and powerful and working, and even though flawed and sinful and not seeing the whole picture, your poets accurately reflected this to some degree. And since we are God's children, we ought not think that we can worship Him through idols. Why? Verse 30, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. I thought about this phrase a lot. Every time I come across it, I think about it. What does it mean, God overlooked the times of ignorance? Well, Paul said something somewhat similar in Acts 14 and verse 16. Or starting in verse 15, we are men of the same nature as you, preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In what sense did God overlook the times of ignorance? I think the most direct answer is he didn't destroy pagan nations immediately. Think about the Canaanites. Think about how the tribes of the Canaanites came about. The, the circumstances of Lot and his daughters and how some of the nations that plagued the Israelites came about in their origins. A tragic and a corrupt sort of story, and yet... God didn't immediately destroy those nations. Think about the sort of worship that the Canaanites practiced that was full of immorality and child sacrifice and all kinds of perversion and mistreatment of various people and all of these sorts of things. Did God immediately wipe out the Canaanites? No, he spared them for 400 years while the Israelites were down in Egypt. And it was not until they came back that he commanded the Israelites to wipe them out from the land of Canaan. And even then, the, the Israelites didn't fully do it. And so, in a sense, God showed mercy, even at that point, for perhaps a longer period. What about other nations? Think about the nation of Assyria. 
the Assyrians were so violent and bloodthirsty that part of their campaign strategy was to kill a whole bunch of people and pile their bodies outside the city as a testament, don't mess with us, we're the ones in charge. God not only didn't immediately judge them, he sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to give them an opportunity to repent. Did he later judge them? Yes. Because they continued not to repent, but for a time he spared them in connection with Jonah's message. Did God spare the Babylonians who were uh, committed to drunken parties and pride and all sorts of other things that we see from the book of Daniel? Did God spare them? Yes, for a time, particularly in connection with the conversion and faith in God of Nebuchadnezzar. So do we see consistent evidence throughout Scripture that God has been patient with people? Yes. Now, what's interesting is Paul says, God now declares to, to men that all people everywhere should repent. So he overlooked the times of ignorance. He spared them for far longer than they deserved. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So we might think that that means that there's no more patience with anybody. But think about what Peter says in 2 Peter. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I know the focus contextually, is probably limited to God is not going to pour out judgment until every last one of the people he's chosen for himself is brought to salvation. But what's the, what's the spillover effect of that? Just like the whole boat was, in a negative sense, going to go down because Jonah was sinning, societies as a whole are spared from God's wrath for a time because God is intending to save people out of them. And so there's a sense in which, even though God overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, he still shows far more patience today than any of us deserve. But that doesn't give us room for excuse. If we look at God's patience, like it says in 2 Peter, and see it as an opportunity to scoff or say that God is forgetful or to mock God in some way, Peter says there you've missed the point. Paul says here... Why does God show patience? To give you an opportunity to repent. It's not okay that they were worshiping God in an idolatrous way. They were doing it in ignorance, but that doesn't completely erase their responsibility for the fact that they were sinning by committing idolatry. But there is hope. There is a way out for them, and that is to turn away from those things and to turn to the Jesus that Paul was proclaiming. Instead of saying, I know better than that, I am not going to go for a life of suffering because life is designed to maximize pleasure, or why would I follow this strange deity that seems powerless because he allowed himself to be killed, and you say he was risen from the dead, but I have no proof of that. Instead of sticking to those sorts of human objections, turn away from what is actually a vain and foolish and empty way of living, idolatry of various kinds, turn to the Jesus that I am proclaiming. Why? Because if it's not enough to recognize that one way of life is empty and vain and the other is full of purpose and meaning, the more important and compelling thing to think about is the fact that in verse 31, there is a day of judgment coming. And so if you are not persuaded by what you know to be the emptiness of your own false religion, then be persuaded by the fact that a day of judgment is coming from which no one will escape who has not repented of it. 
How do we know the day of judgment is coming? Paul says because Jesus was raised from the dead. God's appointed him as the judge. He's coming back. Are you going to be ready when that comes? So why was Paul so worked up about the idolatry? Because he knew that if they persisted in their idolatry, that there was certainty that Jesus is coming back, and all of them were going to be condemned, and all of them were going to be judged, and they would all be forever without God, unless someone told them how to turn away from that and turn to Christ. Do we have that same sense of burden when we look at people around us? Sometimes we think it's kind of an optional thing, like you can live that way if you want, and it's not a great way to live, but it's your life to live. Or do we recognize that that's sort of like saying um, someone's riding a bicycle off a cliff, but, you know, if you want to do that, it's cool. We can't have that attitude. People's lives are in eternal peril and not only do we have to repent and trust in Christ ourselves, but we must compel those around us, urge them to do the same thing. Part of why we don't do it, I think, is because we're not really convinced the day of judgment is coming. Even though we wouldn't say the same things as the guys in 2 Peter, everything continues the way it always has, we get into our daily routines and we say doesn't look like it's happening today. Now do it tomorrow. We are not guaranteed tomorrow for an opportunity to share the gospel to people around us. So, are we taking those opportunities? I don't think that this means that we witness about Jesus to the neglect of all of the responsibilities that we have. The Thessalonians were um, rebuked by Paul for saying, we're just going to wait for Jesus to come back and we're not going to do anything else. So that's not a right response. But I think most of the time, that's not the category we're in. We're more in the category of we're so wrapped up in the details of this life that we forget about what's coming later on. What responses are we going to see? Some began to sneer when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some people are going to say, that's a stupid thing you're saying, I don't want to hear it ever again. Others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. I'm not convinced right now, but I'll listen to you again. So Paul went out of their midst, which I think is an interesting comment by Luke, because sometimes we think they say we don't want to hear it, or they say we'll hear you again, and we say, you're going to hear it right now, even though you don't want to, or you're going to hear it right now, even though you're not convinced yet. There's a time and a place for giving the message, giving space, and then coming back to it again. Particularly, I think, when it comes to uh, trying to share the gospel with our family and friends that um, we see and have opportunity to talk to every day. But there's verse 34 is the response that we're hoping for. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We don't know how many philosophers were standing in the Areopagus that day. One commentator said something like 30. I have no idea why they came up with the number 30. There's nothing in the text as far as I can tell that indicates how many were present. But at least one of them believed. So is it worth 
taking the message if one person believes? Yes. But it wasn't just one, was it? It says some, some men joined him and believed, and then this woman as well. So we don't know exactly how many trusted after Paul gave this message. Maybe it was five, maybe it was ten. We don't know exactly. But going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, if you come to a point where you say, I'm not sure that it's worth it to keep giving the gospel, to keep serving God, to keep living the Christian life, because there's been all of these obstacles and all of these frustrations and all of this difficulty, sometimes it's because we've lost sight of the fact that God has people He wants to save in every place, that God's power is greater than any opposition that you face, and that you and I are compelled to have compassion for people who are going to face God's day of wrath if we don't give them the gospel message. So let's give it. Let's pray. Lord, we get tired, we get frustrated, we are equally distracted by the good things in life and the difficulties of life sometimes from remembering the things that are most important. We love the things that we find temporary pleasure in more than the things that will bring eternal joy. We get consumed with the things that will not matter 20 years from now rather than the things that will matter for all eternity. We begin to, even if we wouldn't admit it openly, doubt your power to save people. We begin to think that those who oppose your work in this world, maybe you're just going to win and we should stop trying. And then sometimes we just don't have compassion for people around us. They are to be looked down upon. They are sources of frustration and difficulty for us. How could they ever believe in you when they have such strange and, and uh, ungodly ideas? Lord, help us to be confident that we are trusting in you ourselves. And if we are trusting in you ourselves, help us to be diligent to take your message to those around us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we urge you on behalf of God, be reconciled. Or knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Or that you have fixed a day in which you will judge the world by the righteous man whom you have appointed. So help us to be ready for that day ourselves and the people around us. We pray that you would help us to think about these things even this week, Lord. Give us strength because we know that you are powerful. Give us hope because we know that you are at work in the world and give us love for those around us because it's so easy for us to be selfish. Let's pray, help us to do these things well, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and stand.